Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our guest segment. We're super excited to have her with us for the first time. Her name is Casey Sepp, and the book is Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. And if you are a To Kill a Mockingbird fan, which who is not, right, you're going to absolutely love this book. And with the holidays coming up, I can't think of a better gift to give someone, especially if they're a true crime fan, uh, than this book, Furious Hours. And uh, Casey Sepp, uh, welcome to the broadcast. Good to have you with us, ma'am. Thanks so much, Jim. Nice to be here. Yeah. So I have to ask you, did you ever have an opportunity to meet Harper Lee? Uh, and if not, how did this case come to your attention? Yeah, I mean, I wish that I had. I think like a lot of your listeners, probably I grew up loving To Kill a Mockingbird. And Harper Lee was certainly one of the most important authors to me as a young person. But I never got the chance to meet her. I, um, I, I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker. And in 2015, I went down to her hometown in Alabama to work on a story. And it was about the second novel she published. So a year before she died, she published a second book. And there was a lot of intrigue and curiosity about it because it was actually the very first book she had ever written. But for curious reasons, it had never been published. And then finally, near the end of her life, it was. So I went down and I was, you know, researching her life for about a year before she died, but but never got to meet her. And then started working on my book around that same time. So, you know, I learned a lot about her life and I met a lot of her family and friends and got to talk with a lot of them, but but I never actually unfortunately got to meet her. Now, the book that never uh, that was never released that didn't come out until uh what 2016 was was called um was called uh what was the name of that book? The 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 other one that came out Ghost at a Watchman. Ghost at a Watchman. Yeah, now, Ghost at a Watchman. Wasn't yeah. there? Well, there's a lot of controversy about that book. Some people say it really isn't a different book from To Kill a Mockingbird. That it's really the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. I haven't read Ghost at a Watchman. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean you're exactly right. And you know, frankly, it was a it was a controversial book. So a lot of people who love and admire Harper Lee never read it because there was all of the suspicion and accusation about the provenance of the manuscripts and where it had come from and whether or not she wanted it published. But, you know, the short version of that is it's it's true. Go set a watchman, you know, this beautiful phrase that she took from the book of Isaiah. Ghost at a Watchman was the very first version of the Makeham story she ever wrote. So for folks who have read it, they know it has Scout, it has Atticus, it has Jem, it has all of the characters who we know and love from To Kill a Mockingbird. But but it's a very different book. You know, it's, it's a messier book. It's politically a more muddled book. And so it was this draft that she wrote and she took to a publisher in New York. And, 
you know, a lot of publishers passed on it. No one wanted to publish it. And then she met a female editor named Tay Hohoff who said, you know, I love these characters. I love this world you're building. I will not publish Ghosts at a Watchman, but I want to help you write a book I can publish. And so it took about two and a half years of revisions, you know, figuring out which part of the story to expand, you know, changing the plot, tightening the chronology, making the kinds of choices writers make all the time, about two and a half years of revisions, and then Harper Lee had finished To Kill a Mockingbird, and that was what was published in 1960. So, you know, draft isn't an inaccurate word. There were a lot of changes, but I think that's why, you know, when Ghost at a Watchman came out, some people thought, oh, wow, this is the sequel. The characters are older, so it seems that way. But in terms of craft and the polishness of the writing, you know, this was the very first book Harper Lee had ever tried to write um, in 1957 is when she turned that in. So it's a little bit confusing. It came out many decades later, but it was written first. And even though the characters are older, it's the original draft. What are your thoughts about this idea that there might still be a secret book that has never been released, which is about the very case yeah. that you wrote about that we're going to get into here in a couple of minutes. Uh, what is your thought about that idea that there is maybe being held by her estate uh, somehow to be released, maybe someday another full book somewhere? Yeah, I mean, it's a tantalizing possibility. And, and look, for those of us who, who love and admire Harper Lee's work, you know, any additional material will be interesting. Um, you know, her, I think her family is planning a collection of her letters and they would like to collect some of her shorter nonfiction. She wrote some articles and short stories, things like that, that could be collected into a volume and, and published. So, you know, there are certainly straightforward publications we can expect, but there is this other more tantalizing possibility. And, and that's the book that's kind of at the heart of my book. So in the, in the 1970s, she got interested in this true crime story, and she did a lot of reporting and research and had a title and had talked with a lot of people about it, but never published it. So there is this possibility that among her papers or, or somewhere among her effects, an entire manuscript was found. And, you know, I, I think it's a real possibility. Certainly some of the people I interviewed, you know, close friends of hers, swear that she finished it, you know, she talked to them about it, or they heard from one of her sisters that it was done, and it was great. Um, that's not everybody in her life. You know, part of my book is about the mystery of whether she finished it, you know, if she did, why didn't she publish it? And so I think it's a real possibility. I, I heard you, I was listening in on the show, you were talking about you know, when when taxes are settled, you know, if you don't do it in your lifetime, they're settled by your estate. And, you <laughs> know, right. I think one of the things that's interesting with regard to Harper Lee is, you know, her estate is actually still being settled with the IRS. Really? Um, yeah. I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah, I had read that yeah, she, she that she's know. actually uh, had a reportedly a net worth of like thirty five million dollars, which. When I when I was looking into that, I was thinking to myself, I, I wouldn't even know what number to guess at, because when you think about not just the, the book, which I think has sold, I don't know how many m millions upon millions of copies, but then also the movie that came out. And then you would think also just her ability um, to make money as a speaker, which I guess she did not do. And I was going to ask you. Um, you know, what do you make of her as a person that 
she it's like you know in in music we call it a one hit wonder you know these uh these mm-hmm. bands like you know uh the spiral staircase uh you know uh looking glass yeah. <laughs> the, the these bands that come out with right. with like the the one hit uh wonder so so looking glass comes out with brandy and everybody knows the song brandy you're a fine girl but that was it they never had another hit right. um and you wonder as a writer to have such an incredibly successful book to kill a mockingbird wins the Pulitzer prize mm-hmm. and pretty much every book award known to God and man. And then says, you know what, yeah. that that's pretty much it for me. Uh, and, and kind of just dis- decides to end it there. That to me is just, I don't know. I can't wrap my brain around that as an author myself. The first thing you would think just ego wise is like, wow, people love me. I need to write a new book every year because of this success. Um, maybe she was smarter than the rest of us to say, quit while you're ahead. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, look, kind of all of the above. So I think the first thing to say is, you know, God bless Harper Lee. She was luckier than we are. You and I <laughs> right. have to keep writing books because we have bills right. and, you know, obligations. And so it is a rare thing, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird did well critically, which some books do, but, but it also did incredibly well commercially. So, you know, globally, we're talking 40 million copies. And Harper Lee kind of overnight, um, you know, became a millionaire. The, the royalties on the book, the proceeds from the movie, she actually got a very lucrative kind of sweetheart deal for, for profit sharing with the film. And so right away, that book set her up financially. And it meant that she really did not have to publish for the remainder of her life. She could, in fact, in a way that very few authors or artists are able to, she could live off the royalties. And she was very lucky. She had an older sister who was a lawyer, who's actually a, an accomplished tax accountant. And, you know, that older sister really helped manage her money and manage her business affairs and set up a kind of allowance whereby Harper Lee could, in fact, live off the royalties. So it meant she was not under the same financial pressures that a lot of authors are. So I think that's one reason she didn't have to publish, you know, the kind of frantic pace a lot of us pursue with work and articles or books or the speaking circuit. She she was never obliged to do that sort of thing for the money. But I think you're right, too, to kind of think about the emotional and aesthetic reasons that people continue to publish. And I think that's where Harper Lee's life is incredibly interesting. And, you know, the last third of my book is a kind of short biography of her, and, and it looks at why she became a writer and all the projects that she undertook, not just To Kill a Mockingbird or the True Crime book, but some some other projects, too. And I think that's where it gets really interesting. And you're right. Part of what friends and family of her say is that she really did think, you know, she was getting out while the getting was good. You know, the book had done so well that she might never be able to write one that was as beloved or that sold as well or that did as well critically. So that kept her from wanting to publish again. And it's people like uh, people, you know, winning the you, <laughs> you walk into the casino, you put a coin in, you spin it, you get a million dollars payout on your first uh, your first yeah, spin you of the wheel and you just leave. You know what? <laughs> you That's good. I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, who's smart enough to do yeah. that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the, that's the incredible thing. Yeah. And, and she largely stayed out of the, the limelight. In fact, so much so that uh, in searching online for interviews of her, there's apparently only one interview that still exists of her talking about the book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Like she literally just did not, yeah. did not do interviews 
stories about that either. And I found that to be also kind of interesting that she, you know, put the book out there and then just never uh, talked about it. It just and just sort of became, you know, a person that uh, did not spend a lot of time in public. And everybody knew the name Harper Lee, but you probably couldn't put a face to it or really, you know, know who she was because that was that was really who she was now getting into this story uh so i'm i'm reading your book and i'm 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 reading the news stories about this trial that your book gets into and so for people that want to understand the connection so harper lee decided that she was going to cover this trial and this could have been that second book that we're all opining about here maybe a second book well this could have been the second book but she never actually wrote the second book although she had intentions to she spent time i believe a year she rented a house to follow this trial and to do research on this case uh, much as she did in assisting uh, truman capote uh, with in cold blood so she sort of you know teed the ball up was going to do this but never actually executed on it and when i looked into this story i was like my goodness if this was not true you would you would get kicked out of a publisher's office for submitting a <laughs> manuscript claiming such a thing that you have a preacher who is a con man who kills multiple members of his family for the life insurance proceeds and is also a voodoo practitioner on top of all of that uh, tell us about this character willie maxwell who almost seems uh, too far out to even be a character in a fiction book. Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, in To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee had this, you know, extraordinary African-American minister, you know, Reverend Sykes, and, you know, he's a morally righteous man. He's, you know, part of the moral backbone of the town. And she found, you know, the polar opposite for this nonfiction project. And she lived a lot of her adult life up in up in New York City. You know, she had friends and family in Alabama, so she would come home a couple times a year, but she lived up in New York. And apparently she read about this case in the New York Times. And, you know, the, the headline, just as you've intimated, is, you know, voodoo preacher gunned down at funeral. <laughs> and in the summer of 1977, this guy, the Reverend Willie Maxwell, was, was murdered in front of 300 people in a funeral home chapel. And he was there for the funeral of his stepdaughter, and he had been accused of murdering her, and she was the fifth of his family members to be found dead under suspicious circumstances, and the fifth family member on whom he had these lucrative life insurance policies. And when I say that, I don't just mean one policy, you know, multiple policies on each individual. So about a half a million dollars in life insurance is what he had collected on these family members, and he had been tried for one of the murders, he had been investigated in all of them. But the police had not been able, um, and they had not been able to get any kind of a conviction. And, you know, the, the trials hadn't gone anywhere. And so another relative of that stepdaughter stood up at the funeral and, and gunned the reverend down in front of everyone. And that's the story that Harper Lee read about in the New York Times and got very interested in because, as you've said, not only was this man a Baptist minister, he was rumored to be a voodoo priest, and there were all of these allegations about how he was getting away with these crimes and why no one could hold him responsible. And what Harper Lee did was come down for the trial of the vigilante. So she was interested in the Reverend Willie Maxwell, but she actually came to town and sat through the trial of the vigilante who murdered him. And, you know, there's another even more complex aspect of this story, which is, if you can believe it, and you have read the book so you can, but maybe your listeners won't. The same lawyer who had defended the Reverend Maxwell for 10 years 
then turns around and defends the vigilante who murdered him. So Harper Lee got very interested in that lawyer. <laughs> this is almost like, in yeah, and so you had Atticus yeah, Finch, really, Atticus I mean, Finch in, in To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. and then you have Big Tom Radney, who is really the opposite also of Atticus Finch. He's a guy who just likes getting people off be, uh, of, uh, of these charges because that's kind of his challenge. He likes to take on these impossible cases and wins. And that's what he does. And he's a character in, in his own right. I guess he was an elected official at some point in time. Uh, he served in, in the mm-hmm. state uh, government there, but goes by the name Big yeah. Tom Radney. And so for people to understand this, I want you to clarify this. So all of these murders that the voodoo Baptist preacher guy commits and ha- on all of his family members who he also holds insurance policies on. So he's getting uh, rid of a family member, which is one motive <laughs> in a lot of households. Mm-hmm. That'll kill two birds with one stone talking about mockingbirds. So we get rid of the family member. And then we also collect a big fat life insurance uh, payment on them. So this guy uh, gets uh, this big uh, Tom Radney character, this lawyer who represents him through all of these different cases and he never gets convicted. And uh, tell me about this Tom Radney. Uh, I saw a video clip where I believe it was a Rita Braver interview where some of his still living family members kind of talked about him. And obviously, you know, family, his family's going to look at him in one way. But uh, tell us about Tom Radney and his uh, sort of uh, appetite to get into these kinds of cases and and not only so so for people that get this so this was like his client for years that he helped get out of all these murders who then himself gets murdered so his own client gets murdered and then he says well the guy who shot him and killed him uh, even though that was my client I guess since he's dead as a lawyer I don't have a conflict now I can now go represent this other guy which is just incredible yeah, I mean, I think it, it certainly was for the people, you know, this, this all took place in, in a place called Alexander City, Alabama, who in Tallapoosa County. And Big Tom was, you know, an incredibly notable lawyer. He had this small town practice, but, you know, he really was, I, I think there's a type and, and people know it, you know, trial lawyers who live for the courtroom and, you know, will take any client and the longer the odds, the more appetizing the case is for them. And that was the kind of lawyer Tom was. I mean, he cared about people and, you know, he relished the way that the law could, you know, meet the needs of a community, but he also just loved the chase and loved the trial. And so truly these hard cases were what he lived for. And he had represented the Reverend for 10 years, not just in the criminal cases that resulted from these murders, but also in a lot of the civil litigation against the life insurance companies. So at a certain point, even though the police couldn't get a conviction, the life insurance companies who, you know, were, were really sick and tired of the Reverend <laughs> Maxwell coming family member after family member after family member, you know, refused payment. And so Big Tom had to bring these civil cases in order to get the Reverend his policies. And, you know, I think the law is a complicated profession, and we do have a legal system where everyone, when it comes to criminal proceedings, is entitled to a lawyer. And, you know, Tom wasn't the only lawyer to get mixed up with the Reverend Maxwell. I think one of the most surprising walk-on characters in my book is a really renowned civil rights lawyer named Fred Gray. And, you know, Fred Gray represented Rosa Parks, and he represented the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and he also represented the Reverend Willie Maxwell. 
you know, in one of these civil cases. So, you know, Alabama is an interesting state and cases come and go in different dockets. So a couple of lawyers have been involved with the reverend. And so Tom was one of them. And, you know, his representation raised eyebrows around town and certainly made people question his personal ethics and legal ethics. So I think, you know, one of the reasons Harper Lee was interested in this case is he was such a complicated lawyer and his politics were complicated and his role in this case was complicated. And so, you know, when she got to know him, I think what she was interested in was a very complicated lawyer and someone who could really shine a light on the complexity and the moral ambiguity of the legal profession. So you're, you're right to point to the contradiction. You know, a lot of people in town thought, wow, I didn't even know Big Tom could take this case. <laughs> but I think from his perspective, representing the vigilante was an attempt, you know, to improve his own standing and restore some of his own respect in the community. Because, you know, vigilanteism is, is a very, very tricky thing. And, you know, this was an example of a case where it did not take much convincing to convince a jury that this was a kind of public service. And, you know, those kinds of arguments, it's a very interesting, I, I go kind of, you know, day by day through the trial of the vigilante because, you know, there you have the prosecutor who's making the case, law and order requires us to handle this case a certain way. And there are all these witnesses that, you know, the accused had confessed at that point. But there was big time saying, you know, sometimes the letter of the law and the spirit of the law are in conflict. And your job as a jury is to pursue justice. And that might require you to do something more interesting than just decide the case as it happened. So, you know, Harper Lee was there for that. And I think probably, you know, the book she was trying to put together would have really looked at the complexities of that. And that so was, for you know, big time to put this in uh, the reverend so. to put this in context, folks, we're talking about the 1970s now when this was going yeah. on. Uh, and and so what literally happened was. There was a funeral for the last family member who was, what was she, a teenage girl? The the last death? 15 years old. Yeah, it was a really scandalous and, crime. Yeah. yeah. And then she's murdered uh, by him, allegedly. So so he gets off on that trial. And then uh, this relative named Robert Burns uh, pulls out a gun at the funeral in front of 300 plus people. And shoots and kills yeah. the voodoo preacher. And you've got to think like even, I mean, back in that day, like, you know, back in the 1970s, for something like that to happen anywhere would have been a big thing. But to happen in a small town like that was incredible. And what's even more incredible is that. Uh, the legal defense, was it largely based on an insanity type of a, a plea, which was kind of groundbreaking law back then? And then Robert Burns is is found. Was he found not guilty or not guilty by insanity? Not guilty by insanity. So, you know, again, it's an interesting, again, the, the, the complexities of the law. Obviously, it was a tricky case to make. And Tom Radney, big Tom, needed to find, you know, a legally defensible way for the jury to find in his client's favor. So the insanity plea was a very old plea, but it was already controversial at that time. And, you know, it did require expert testimony. And there was a lot of debate between the prosecution and the defense about whether this applied to Robert Burns or not. And, you know, so, so that acquittal was by, you know, what we would call today a technicality. Now, you know, Robert Burns is still alive. I interviewed him. Harper Lee interviewed him. You know, he's an interesting guy. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, it was not a hard case to make. 
And we haven't gotten into some of what I think interested Harper Lee about this case, but, you know, both the Reverend Maxwell and Robert Burns were African-American. And Tom was white. The prosecution was all white. It was an all white jury that acquitted Robert Burns. Hmm. So I think in some other ways, this case was interesting to Harper Lee because the complexities of race were, were even more profound than in Mockingbird. You know, the the crimes had been committed you know, within the same family. So they were African-American victims. And the police had actually investigated incredibly thoroughly. They had undertaken significant investigations. They had tried to bring these cases to trial. So I think, you know, she chose a very hard case to represent and, and one that was not straightforward. And, you know, it was a, it was a case where the lawyers were complicated and the politics were complicated. And frankly, the outcome was a little confusing. So I think it's just it's interesting, you know, when we wonder what was Harper Lee up to in all those years after To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, in the 1970s, in the early 80s, she was, you know, sitting through this trial, researching this case, interviewing, you know, black you know, family, surviving family members of murder victims and, you know, this vigilante and these lawyers. So it's just a very interesting pursuit on her part. And I think, you know, the way my book is structured, the first third is about the Reverend Maxwell. The second third is about Big Tom Radney. And the the last third of the book is about Harper Lee and how she met these characters and what she made of them and what happened to her attempt to write the story. Do you think that the uh, the the obviously the outcome of that uh, trial would not have been known before you know she started uh, looking at the story. Uh, do you think the outcome of that affected whether she went forward with it? In other words, I ask myself this question, and everybody has a different thought on it. You know, what really was the message of To Kill a Mockingbird, and what would have been the message of a book by Harper Lee about this particular case? To Kill a Mockingbird, to me, was a significant book because I grew up in Chicago in an all-white neighborhood. Um, I did not have any black friends or any black kids that I played with or was even around until I went to high school, went to high school. The mm. high school we went to was a mixed high school. It was the first time I was around mm. African-Americans. And I, at the same time, was exposed to the book in our you know English class to kill a mockingbird. And it was sort of perfect timing for me because it gave me an opportunity to understand mm. um, race relations and to, you know, I had relatives that were two, three generations back that's that were racist, would say racist things. And as mm. a young person going into high school who had never been around African-American people, it was a little bit scary and maybe it was scary for them being around, you know, white people because generally we didn't mix, uh, at least in a lot of those neighborhoods. But I had some of the most wonderful friends and that book really changed me to understand that we're all human beings and we might be different colors and different races. That message to me is an incredible message that goes beyond I don't know. It's it's almost like a, a message from from the Bible, from, you know, every religion, every philosophy. Mm -hmm. Who could disagree with that message of of equal rights and the value of every human being uh, and all of that that came out of that book? But then you have this other book and you have to say, what would have been the message to come out of that book? Not every book has a message. It might have just been a true story and it would have been interesting. But do you think that the the lack of a sure. of an incredible message like that maybe made her decide, you know what, I'm not going to try to improve on what I've already done, sure. which is which is really perfection. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question, Jim. And I, I just want to say, you know, I think your experience is like a lot of people. And I think that's the reason why To Kill a Mockingbird has had such an enduring legacy is it is a profound introduction to these complicated conversations and, you know, a very admirable attempt to make sense of difference and diversity. And I think you're right that, you know, by the time Harper Lee you know, was looking at the Reverend Maxwell's case, she already had a kind of moral authority in American culture right? and around the world. Frankly, it was already a global phenomenon. And certainly you're not wrong to ask that question. And in fact, a couple of her you know, friends who I got to interview just said, we really think, you know, no publisher wanted this book, that it was too complicated. There was no moral. It was scandalous, you know, that it would not be a book for children. Remember that To Kill a Mockingbird has been enshrined, you know, on middle school syllabi. Right. And this was a shocking story of a serial killer. And, you know, again, vigilanteism is one of these just complicated discussions for us to have. And, you know, there's a there's a version of it happening now with regard to some of the protests and some of the violent reactions in cities around this country. It is a, it is a morally fraught conversation, and it has been, you know, all the way back through the history of humankind. And so, plenty of people who knew her when she was working on this just said, "Oh gosh, it's too hot to handle." And you know, <laughs> this is not the book that anyone wants from Harper Lee. Now, I think that's true, and that's interesting. Now, I think that's part of the reason she was drawn to it. You know, Flannery O'Connor, a writer I admire, had dismissed To Kill a Mockingbird as a children's book. And so Harper Lee, for all that she was celebrated, there were other more critical voices who, you know, did not consider Mockingbird serious literature. They thought the Pulitzer might have been, you know, awarded out of turn. So I think she had a lot of expectations and anxieties about the complexity of her own work. And, and that might have been some of what interested her. But I just want to say one thing, and it's an advantage I had trying to write about all this 40 years later. I think there's another, you know, very straightforward reason Harper Lee struggled with this book. And, you know, you pointed out she wouldn't have known the outcome of Robert Burns, the vigilante's trial. But there's also something else, which is at the time she was working on it, and I quote some of her letters in the book where she she says as much, you know, the reverend had had a few accomplices for these murders. You know, there were there were all sorts of stories about how he had gotten away with it. Hmm. And all of these crimes were staged as car accidents. And so there had always been this thought that, you know, he probably had someone who was an accomplice or an accessory who was helping him, you know, stage the crime scenes and get away. And poor Harper Lee, you know, when she moved to this town in 1977, right after the murder happened, and she's living there at the very same time. And in some of her letters, she says that, you know, she's afraid of the accomplice and afraid for her own safety. And so I think that there were a lot of things that, made this case tricky and difficult and maybe even frightening at the time she was pursuing it. It was a real life case. You know, the the story of the Reverend has a kind of dark humor to it. And, you know, it is one of these stranger than fiction stories. But, you know, these were five murders and they were active cases. And there was a lot of uncertainty about, you know, whether it was voodoo or, or just the techniques he had used. And so I think that for me, part of what I tried to be mindful of in telling her story was, you know, all of the real difficulties she faced that weren't just about, you know, did she have a good work ethic? Did she write every day? Was she good at revisions? You know, she had a lot of interpersonal problems that had made it hard for her to write. And then just a lot of this case itself is tricky and, and hard to wrestle into a clear, coherent story. And, you know, people's motives are always mixed and the truth is always hard to find. And, 
you know, things are not as straightforward as we think often. So I think living through that, you know, in 1977, 1978, when it was happening is just another reason it was hard for her to produce her book. Very good. And uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the preacher, because I I found him to be really the most fascinating character in the book, maybe second uh, to Big Tom. Uh, But this this preacher, people were afraid of this preacher, not only because of the voodoo claim, but some people even believed that he could kill you if he was angry at you or he could, uh, you know, cause you to die just through magic. Or some people even thought he could turn into a cat. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, I just want to say, first of all, Jim, you're my kind of reader, because, you know, obviously, if you give them the choice between three characters, most people <laughs> say their favorite is the famous novelist. <laughs> I love that you're torn between the two, you know, obscure characters. I agree. I think the law is interesting. I think religion is interesting. So I was always fascinated by these two. But yeah, the Reverend Maxwell was just, you know, infamous in this part of Alabama. And it's so infamous that you could just say the reverends of people in Coosa County knew who you meant. They knew you meant the Reverend Maxwell. And yes, one of the most preposterous things that was said about him was that he could turn into a black cat if he wanted to. And when people first started to tell me that I'm from Maryland, but not from Alabama, and I had gone down to research and report this book. And, you know, I was down there around Lake Martin, this part of Alabama, and someone starts telling me about the black cat business. And I just thought, well, maybe they're pulling my leg because I'm from, you know, out of town and they just think I'll fall for anything. And then Harper Lee, in the year that she lived here, you know, working on her book, she actually adopted a stray cat and she <laughs> named it the Reverend Maxwell because people had told her those same stories. Oh. I don't think she put any stock in it. I quote this great letter of hers where she says, you know, I don't know if the Reverend Maxwell believes in Christianity and I don't know if he believes in voodoo, but I do know he had a profound and abiding belief in life insurance. <laughs> so I don't think he put much stock in the voodoo rumors, but, you know, she was fascinated by the life insurance fraud and how that all works and by the proceedings of the criminal justice system. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I, I tried to confine that all to kind of a couple of paragraphs. So, um, you don't, you don't, you get a sense of the things people said. And again, if you've ever lived in a small town and, and some horrific act of violence has happened or someone in your family has been a victim of violence, you know how these stories get told right. and why people are so afraid. And, you know, when we when we don't know what happened or when the police can't solve a crime, you know, that that space is where fear and rumor and supernaturalism grow. So I think that's a lot of also what was interesting to Harper Lee, you know, the character of Boo Radley, just incredibly fascinating character in American literature. And, you know, the way that, you know, ghost houses or haunted houses populate the geography of small town America, that's some of what the Reverend was. You know, it was a very, it was very far, you know, extreme version of that. But, you know, the way we're afraid of our neighbors or there's somebody who just always, you know, kind of raises the hair on your, on your arms. That's some of what she was interested in, that kind of superstition and, and just way we make sense of the world. Any talk of a movie about your book? Because it's got to be a movie. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that's one of my poor Harper Lee when she was, you know, I said she was down there in 1977 and 1978. There was just a lot of people. Here she was, you know, trying to get these interviews and trying to talk to people and Everybody wanted to know, like, was Gregory Peck going to play him or who was going to play him in the movie or was she going to pay for their life rights? So 
I, I feel lucky to have just gotten to write the book and not had anybody worried about that. Um, so nothing yet. So I'm thinking we'll, um, we'll see. There's a, Tom Arnold could oh, be sorry, Big Tom, right? Uh, there, that's, that's my first thought. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I will say for people who have a hankering for a movie about these kinds of things, there are actually two great movies that were made about the writing of In Cold Blood, which you mentioned this, but, you know, Harper Lee and Truman Capote were, were childhood friends. Yeah. And there's a movie called Capote and there's another one called Infamous. And they're both great about the story of reporting out in cold blood. And she's played by Sandra Bullock in one and Catherine Kenner in the other. But they, they look very seriously at how these kinds of books get written and, you know, the biases authors bring to their story and the kind of reporting techniques they use. And they're both wildly interesting. So I don't know if my book will ever be made into a movie, but those are both interesting for people who love Harper Lee or just want to know more about true crime journalism. And the final question is, uh, obviously, To Kill a Mockingbird has changed so many people, including me. It's got a message in it that is everlasting, which is incredible. Uh, what is the message of your book? Does your book have a message or is it strictly a true crime story? That is a fascinating question, and I think that, you know, if we're all serious about our work, whether it's your radio show or my book, you know, we ought to be thinking about what we want people to get out of it and how it can change their life. And I guess, I mean, you, I said you were my kind of reader because you were just as interested in the Reverend Maxwell and Big Tom and Harper Lee, and I've always thought that, you know, the straightforward book to write about this story would have just been a biography of Harper Lee. But what I love about my book is that it does give everyone a chance to tell their story. So one-third is the Reverend, one-third is Big Tom, and one-third is Harper Lee. And, you know, I think that's probably a good way to be in the world, to feel like every one of us has an interesting story. And no matter what has happened in our life, you know, we have a story worth telling. So rather than just write about the most famous person, I, I try to write about the three of them and take seriously who they were and where they came from and what they have in common or how they were different from each other. And so, you know, I guess if I, if I had to give it a moral, I hope it's not this heavy handed, but just the moral would be, you know, everybody is interesting, even if they're not a favorite famous novelist. Yeah. And I, you know, what I got from it was the complexity really of what is right and wrong. When you look at, uh, uh, when you look at just the reality of, I, I, I think it would be clear <laughs> that we could say this uh, voodoo preacher was a bad guy and he met his end uh, by somebody that was willing to to take that take the law into their own hands, which we certainly don't condone. But, you know, the truth is, if you look at all the, the superhero movies and all that, you never see Batman get, uh, you know, a judge to <laughs> to give him an order to knock down a door before he goes in to take care of the Joker or someone like that. So the idea of someone doing the right thing, even though it may not legally be the right thing, I think is an interesting message uh, from your book. And also, you know, in the end, uh, the right thing, it, it appears the good the good. Uh, you know, it, it came out. I mean, we've got Robert Burns was not convicted, didn't spend the rest of his life in prison, was was acquitted, was able to go on with his life and justice. Although it came through uh, a means we wouldn't normally condone, it did 
uh, take place with uh, Willie Maxwell. And so the story ends on a positive note, I think. That's how I see it. And we thank you so much for being with us. We hope if uh, you write another book, uh, you'll come back. And if the movie comes out and you become rich and famous, you won't forget us. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Yeah, you know, if you've got a producer, you know, some filmmaker listening, yeah, sure, you know, let's, let's do it. But in any event, thanks for having me. It's always a lot of fun to talk about the book, especially with someone who's read it so generously. Thank you so much. God bless. And we hope to see you back again soon. And I'll tell you, that that was an incredible book to read. And if you want to get it, it's now in paperback, which brings the price uh, way down. It's called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. So if you're a To Kill a Mockingbird fan, which who isn't, right? You got to get this book and read it. And like I said, a great book uh, for the holidays, which are coming up, if you're looking for a gift for somebody, especially somebody that's interested in true crime. And there's also an audio version. There's also a Kindle version as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.